Father, we are thankful for you, to you today, for giving us that life that is in Christ. Think about what it is that we've already read this morning. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, but you, Father, have made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You set it aside, you nailed it to the cross, and you disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. You think about what your word is communicating to the believer. The victory of Christ, his supremacy ruling and reigning over all things. The power that he has to effectively work in our lives, that he is, as it is, he has declared there is a work that he has already done within us, regenerating us and giving us life, and yet he continues to work in our lives, conforming us to make us like him and preparing us to be with you, Lord, for all of eternity. And I pray that you would, that we would see, that you would help us to see all of life being done with that end in view. For all of us here today, Lord, help us to hear, help us to see the power and the beauty and the, uh, of Christ. Father, this is a work that only you can do that we pray that you would do today. Bring us to you. May we behold him and his power and his majesty be changed by him, be saved, be sanctified by the redemptive work of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> You can turn to Romans chapter 2. Um, we'll be in verses 25 through 29, finishing chapter 2 today. We want to talk about a life that is praised by God. And I don't know about you, but this is the way that I want to live my life. I want to have a life, as, as we're going to see in verse 29... Our passage ends with this phrase, his praise is not from man, but from God. Like, that's the life I want to live. That's the life I'm shooting for. I want a life that is praised by God or commended or approved by God. That's what Paul is talking about. This is kind of like the punchline of what it is that we're going to be talking about today. We'll work our way there. And he's talking about um, how does one, what is, what does the life look like that God praises, that God approves of, that God commends. For everybody who's a believer, like we should be thinking about, yes, what is that type of life? That's the life I want to live. I want to live a life that at the end of the days, when I go to be with him, I'm hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Like I want to live a life that he commends as being good in his sight. Like for me, at the end of the day, that, that would be a life well lived. Um, and I'm hoping for you, for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are here today, that that would be the definition of a life well lived by you as well. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, okay, I get that, but I'm not there. I want to get there. I've been there before. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be there and to think that way and want that. 
I'm just not there right now. Whether it's the season of my life, whether it's just today, I'm feeling like, no, sometimes I wish my life would have other things in it or a part of it. Then I could really be happy with my life. What I'm trying to get us to say is that, no, the life that we can be happy and satisfied with is the life that God approves of and that he praises. And so I want us to, I want us to have that vision, have that goal. I want us to grab hold of it. And I want us to pursue it, to be convinced of it, and be sold out for it. We're pursuing, living a life that he, is, that he praises, a life that's praised by God, a life that he commends as being good, like you have lived your life well. I can think of really no more encouraging words to hear from the Lord than to hear him say, Nick, you lived your life well. I'd be like, oh, yes, good. I did something right. Amen. Um, those are for, for, for us as Christians, that should be our goal. For everyone who's here today who doesn't know Christ, just know this. The, 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 the way to at least be on that path and on that journey is to first know him. The, the, and we're going to talk, we'll see that in the text today. To live a life that God commends begins with a life that knows his son by faith and by faith alone. You have to get that right. You will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You will not receive a good judgment and a good reward no matter what you have done, no matter how many good works and good deeds and the amount of money you've given away, the countless hours you've donated to humanitarian effort. None of that is going to matter a hill of beans when you get before him if you don't know Christ by faith and by faith alone. The life that he praises, that he commends, begins first with a life that knows and loves his son. You have to get that right. So um, just a brief kind of introduction to catch us up to where we have been in Romans chapter 2. As we, before we look at our text today, the Lord, um, through Paul, has been trying to help us all see that mankind, all mankind is condemned, that there is salvation Nowhere else, not by keeping of the natural law, not by keeping of the Mosaic law, because the standard is too high. It's perfection. No matter what the standard is, no matter what it is that you have been exposed to in the law that you have imprinted on your conscience, revealed to you in creation, given to you by divine revelation, you cannot keep it perfectly, which is what God's standard is. Nobody is justified. Nobody is saved by their works. But recently, Paul has turned his attention, really beginning in verse 17, specifically to the Jews. And today, he's going to go for the heart of the matter. He's going to be addressing the issue that lied. What, was, what, was made, what made the Jewish heart beat in their works-based system and how they viewed themselves? Really, what was the root of their pride? What was the root of their hypocrisy. What was it? And that, that's what Paul is going to be addressing today because we know, or I hope you know, that unless you get to the heart of the matter, you will never get to what is really the fundamental problem. You have to get to the root of what is going on in someone's life in order to, uh, to address all of the outward fruit. And Paul is going for that root today. Commentator Robert Haldane said, Paul here is pursuing the Jew into his last retreat. We have seen him begin in verse 17, 
address the Jews specifically and them relying on the law. They boast in God. They approve of what is excellent. They know his will because they are instructed from the law. They have in the Mosaic law these things that are pleasing to God. And because of that, they saw themselves as guide to the blind, as a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. They're teachers of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They have all these things that God gave them by his good grace through the law, and it just went haywire because this is what happens when God gives anything to rebellious sinners. We messed it up, and we messed it up real good. We messed it up real quick. And that's what they did. They took the law, and they, instead of seeing it as an expression of God's perfection and his holiness and what he required, they took it as something that, wow, now look at us. We're so special. Look what God gave to us. Look at who we are. He must think so highly of us. And it, and it fed into this root of pride and hypocrisy. And what lied at the heart of it was this, this practice of circumcision. Um, it really posed a huge problem for them. And that's what he's going to be addressing today. And he pursues them there so that they might see that salvation is never attained by outward acts but always by inward change. And he's going to bring up Abraham and talk about Abraham as an example of that. And I hope that we're listening today. So Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, let's read, and then we'll, we'll dive in and we'll notice some things. Romans chapter 2, 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So that last phrase there, his praise is not from man, but from God. What, is, what does a life look like that God praises, that he commends? He works his way there by talking about a few things in particular. And he sets up this, this rite of circumcision, this act of circumcision, and um, what they had made it in order to help get them to see that it's never by what you do outwardly. God never looks upon your life purely outwardly by your actions and says, you live a commendable life. It is always includes what it is that's going on inside. Why do you do what you do? Are you doing it for personal praise? Recognition? Are you doing things because you want to provide a good life for your family? Be a good citizen of the United States of America? I mean, what is your motivation for why you do what you do? Not all of these things are bad things, but any of these things, good things can become bad things when they become ultimate things. The ultimate thing that, is, that leads to a life that is commended by God that he is pleased with is a life that is springing from the inward heart change outwardly. My motive is that I want to do everything for the glory of God because he has so wonderfully loved me by sending his beloved son 
Jesus Christ to die for my sins upon a cross, and brutally did he die for us. Like, that's the motivation. I want, to, I want to live a life of love for him because I see his love poured out upon me. It always involves, I'm telling you, everything that we do always involves the inner man and the outer man. And the life that God commends or praises are when the inner man is aligned with what he wants, what his will is. We learned about this morning in Ephesians chapter 5 to, to know the will of God, to live according to the will of God. And to do so in loving trust in him, which is what we see um, in our example of Abraham. Paul began his concerted effort back in verse 17, showing them that their current problem is actually an Old Testament problem. And so Paul goes back to the Old Testament to help them address and fix what it is that's going on. He'll say in verse 25, for circumcision is indeed, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. First, one of the things that we see in a life that is praised by God is a life that trusts in his promises. And, and it doesn't explicitly say this in verse 25, but this is what is being implied as he uses Abraham as his example. Because you go back to um, where circumcision began. What Paul is doing here is he's taking an issue and he's addressing it from a larger spiritual framework. He's taking a very practical, everyday issue that, that they were doing, that they were involved in, and he's addressing it and he's building it within a larger spiritual framework. Circumcision was connected with obedience to the Mosaic law, but there was a spiritual component to it as well, much like there is for baptism for us. Right? We know that the outward act of baptism doesn't save anybody. Why do people get baptized? Why do they go through the physical and outward action of, being, of standing in a hot tub or a pool or a lake or a river or wherever you are and, and going and being submerged underwater and coming out? Why do we do that? Is there anything about the water that's special that saves the person? No. They do it, the outward act is done as an outward joyful expression that there's something that has taken place inwardly inside of me. Now, I've undergone a baptism, if you will, of the Spirit of God. I've been circumcised, as Colossians 2, as we read earlier this morning, says, has happened to me. God has circumcised my heart. He's taken away the body of flesh, and he's done away with it, as he would say earlier in Colossians 2. And because he's done this sovereign, powerful, wonderful, joyous work within me, for me to respond in water baptism is like, absolutely. Like not only do I do it because he calls me to do it, and it's a way, it's an opportunity for me to express my obedience to him and my love for him because it's what he done within me, but it's also a way for me to testify to everyone else, look and see what God has done. Like, he has taken me. This person that was rebellious and wicked in nature, as I was separated from God, just living my own life, pursuing my own life, let me tell you something. God has so miraculously done this inner work in me. How did he do it? I don't really know or understand. Why did he do it? I don't understand or know that either, but I know that he has. He came to me, and he spoke to me. And he revealed to me the inner nature, my, my, my depraved condition of Romans 1. And he showed me my wickedness and my sin, and he opened my eyes to it. 
and I was undone by what it is that I saw. And then he showed me the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of himself, coming to me and saying, freely, I forgive. And we see him and we love him and we embrace him and yeah, we want to live rightly for him and we don't perfectly. But there's been such an inner change that has taken place outwardly. That's what it is that baptism, that's what I want to do. It's an eager, joyous expression outwardly to show what has gone on inside. And when you go back to circumcision, that's exactly what happened with Abraham. You flip with me, if you will, back to Genesis chapter 12. And we're not going, this is going to be like a a 30,000 foot view. But there are some things here that I want us to see about Abram, as God calls him, and the expression of his trust in the Lord, and how God is pleased with that, and then where circumcision actually comes into the picture. And if you know your Old Testament, you know it. circumcision doesn't come early on in the story. It comes much later. So Genesis chapter 12, it's all about how God sovereignly calls Abram to go out of his country to a land. And in this, he gives him promises, gives him a land and a seed promise in particular. And Abram's response is seen in verse 7 of chapter 12. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So what does Abram do? He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He worships. That's the point in building an altar. God God initiates this conversation. God initiates this relationship. God initiates these promises. He comes to Abram, who's living in a pagan country, by the way, and says, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give you this seed, and I'm going to take you there, and I'm going to do it. And Abram's response is worship. He says it again. He does the same thing in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, 14 through 18, God again comes to him, reiterates the promises, and Abram's response is the same in verse 18. So Abram moved his tent, came by the settles, came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which is in are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. God repeats the promises, and he does it again. He worships. He responds in worship. Genesis chapter 14 um, is this example of Abram showing his trust. And his love for the Lord as he forgoes partaking of the spoils of war with a pagan king. You see that in chapter 14, verse 21. There's this war. The pagan king offers him some of the spoils of war. And Abram, in his display of allegiance and his love for God, says, I don't want any of that stuff. I'm not partnering with you in any way, shape, or form. And then comes Genesis 15. This covenant ceremony that God makes with Abram. You notice it's all God. It's God. God is pursuing. God is doing it. God is making the promises. Abram is what? He's responding how? Worship. Worship. Allegiance. Trust in God. And then God comes and makes this covenant ceremony with Abram. Again, it's initiated by God. And this is a, it's, it's a very, it's a very, very important part of Abram's story to understand to say the least. God comes to him, he makes this covenant ceremony, and within covenant ceremonies, you would have two kings, a greater king and a lesser king. The greater king would make a covenant with the lesser king, and and essentially there would be promises 
and there would be punishments. Promises as the greater king to protect you, to provide for you as a lesser king. Punishments if you break the covenant that I'm making with you. And then there would be this ceremony where they would, as they do here in Genesis 15, they would take animal, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, they would put half on this side, half on this side, and usually the lesser king would walk between the two halves of the slain animals as a sign to say, if I break my covenant, my end of the bargain, you can cut me in half like I'm like these we have done to these animals. What's interesting in Genesis 15 is that it's not Abram, the lesser king, that walks between the animal halves, it's God himself saying, if I don't fulfill my promises to you, you can cut me in half like we've done these two animals. But because it's impossible to cut God in half, he's saying that's how impossible it is for me to not fulfill my promises to you. I am going to do what I promised to do. And Abram receives the promise. And then in 17, Genesis chapter 17, he's given an opportunity to show his trust in response. Genesis chapter 17 is the circumcision part of the covenant ceremony. This is not a new covenant that's being enacted. It's the first one that God made with him. And God commands him and says, circumcise yourself, you and every male. And look what he says in verse 12. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Circumcision was, ceremony was for all of those who were the the offspring of Abram, but also for any foreigner that was in the camp. Abram undergoes circumcision not in order to get into the covenant, not in order to be made right with God. He undergoes circumcision as the joyful response of already being in the covenant, as already being a recipient of all of God's grace, of all of God's promises given to him. And so God says, circumcise yourself then and be identified, be set apart as belonging to me, as someone who receives all of my promises. And Abram's response is, okay, Absolutely. And God says, but any male among you who does not circumcise himself, cast them out. Why? Because what are they saying by refusing to undergo circumcision? I'm not identified with you, God. I don't believe these promises are for me. They're separating themselves from the promises and the care of God, and therefore they are cast out. But for everybody who receives the promise, who trusts in God to do what he says he's going to do, is circumcised and and counted as one who's in in the family. Circumcision signified the joyful response of obedience to God as a recipient of his covenant blessings and promises, and it reflected a circumcised heart. Israel would stray from this, and they would be reminded in de- later on in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, the importance of circumcising their hearts. And Jeremiah in chapter 4, verse 4, would again remind them of the importance of circumcising their hearts. See, they strayed. They were doing the outward circumcision, no problem. But the matter of the heart, that's what they had neglected. That's what it was that God was going after. 
Abram was physically circumcised because he had already had a circumcised heart. That was the model of faith to move forward. They had it turned upside down. So gross that it turned into that one of their writings and sayings was this. For the Jews, Abraham sits before the gates of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite to enter into it. As if Abraham is standing before the gate of hell and going, circumcised to the flesh? Yep, all right, cool, you're going to heaven. Circumcised? Going to heaven. Circumcised? Nope. Okay. To them, that's what it had turned into. As long as you were physically circumcised, you were good. God was not going to give you a, a bad judgment by way of sending you into hell as long as you had been circumcised. And, you know, I think if there are so many ways in which we don't, we, don't, you, we don't do circumcision like that, there's so many ways within the church that we do the same thing. Oh, have you done this? Have you done that? How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I, I read my Bible. I go to church. I try to be a good person. Oh, you're, you're, just, you're, you're pointing at yourself. I, I, me, 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 I do this. That's not, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not about what you have done. The gospel is all about what Christ has done, pointing to him. The only reason why any of us, as I've said before, should be allowed to go have entrance into heaven is that the, the man on the middle cross said I could come. And I believe by faith and by faith alone that what he did upon that cross and his death, burial, and resurrection has set me free and I am allowed into fellowship and eternal glory with the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's all about what he has done and not us. And Paul is telling them that though they are physically circumcised, they are actually the uncircumcised in the eyes of God. Because they do not have circumcised hearts. A life that is pleasing to God is a life that trusts in him and a life that trusts in him is shown outwardly because it's an inward reality for us. Secondly, a life that trusts in God is, or excuse me, a life that is praised by God is a life that walks in obedience to him because of a changed nature. He would go on and say in verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised, now he's talking about the Gentiles, this would have been unthinkable to the Jew. Absolutely like out of this world, what Paul is going to say here. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Their immediate answer would have been no, no. But where Paul is going, the answer is yes. If a man, a Gentile, who is uncircumcised but yet keeps the precepts of the law, will he not condemn you who are circumcised but disobey the law? Yes, he will. Why? How can a man who is physically uncircumcised condemn a man who is physically circumcised? Because the uncircumcised one is showing by keeping the precepts of the law that he has a circumcised heart. He's doing what the law requires. He's talking about the believing Gentile. Whereas you, with the, with the circumcised flesh, you have an uncircumcised heart. You're not living a life that's pleasing to God. You're relying upon your outward goodness and works. 
This is, of course, why I, as I said when we were in verses 14 through 16, that I believe he's talking about the believing Gentile there. I know that that's not a universally held view, but there's so much language that's parallel in verses 25 through 29 and verses 14 and 16. But in, in verses 25 through 29, it's clear that he's talking about the believing Gentile, the one who is uncircumcised in the flesh and yet has the circumcised heart. Why? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Not only were outward works but the inward heart change important. And not by perfect obedience to the law either, but by a heart and a desire to obey the word of God. As a Christian, because you have a circumcised heart, your general desire is to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. Like, we don't get that right all the time. But the ministry of the Spirit in our lives is to give us a disposition and an orientation because of a new heart and a new nature to do that which is pleasing to him. Like, there should be some part of your life as a Christian where you're going, like, I, I do, I, I, I do want to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. I do want to do what he calls commendable. And because of that, obedience plays a very important part for the believer. It's not just about having a change inward heart and then I do whatever I want on the outside. If that's the way that you live your life, then you're probably showing you never had an inward change to begin with. The uncircumcised man who keeps the law will condemn the circumcised man who had it fully yet didn't do it. Why? Because it is, as he said earlier in verse 13, it's the doers of the law who will be justified, not the hearers. How is someone who a doer of the law in a way that garners justification. We've already covered the fact that it can't be by work, by outward works alone. The doer of the law is the person who has a circumcised heart. I mean, if you read this entire chapter in its context and working through Paul's argument, he's already established that you cannot be justified by works and by works alone, that the standard is too high. It's, it's perfection. So the only way that one who is uncircumcised actually does what's in the law in a way that's pleasing to God is because they've had an inward circumcision heart change first. And that's where he gets to in verses 28 and 29. He's speaking of in verses 26 and 27 as actual obedience. He is referring to real and actual obedience. But it's real and actual obedience that flows out of a heart that's been circumcised and changed. Not as a way to earn salvation, but as an overflow of one who's already been saved. And this inward heart change being the key to all of it is what's made clear in verses 28 and 29. A life that is praised by God is a life that trusts in him, a life that obeys his word. But it's first and foremost and ultimately a life that is born by him. That's where it begins. You see this again modeled perfectly in Abram. God comes to Abram, sovereignly calls him, bears him as his child. Abram just believes in the promises of God and he's justified. 
he undergoes circumcision as, an, as a joyful response to what it is that God has done. He's undergone an outward circumcision because the inward circumcision has already taken place. His heart's already been radically changed by the goodness and the promises of God that has come to him. And we see in verses 28 and 29 that this is actually done in Abram's life and in our life sovereignly by a work of God. His argument is, is reaching its pinnacle here. How is it that one who is uncircumcised, how do we know he's talking about the believing Gentile? How do we know that the uncircumcised man um, can actually do anything of any value and good in the eyes of the Lord in, in, a, in a way that is commendable, but yet not in a way that garners justification. As a believer, like the things that we do are good in his sight, as commendable, but they're never the basis of our justification. They're always the fruit, never the root. How do we know that these things are true? Because of what he says and how he ends his argument in 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew. Now he begins to talk about this, this physical component and the spiritual reality behind it as well. Who is the true Jew? Who is the one that is really circumcised? Who is the one that really lives a life that is praised, being praised or commendable by God? No one is a Jew who is, one, who is merely one outwardly, nor, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You think that just because you're an Israelite, you're a Jew, you're not a Jew, not in the eyes of the Lord. Just because you've undergone physical circumcision, nope. You think you're a Jew because you've been physically circumcised and because you come from this certain lineage and heritage and ethnicity and bloodline. You're wrong. A Jew is not one merely outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By who? By the Spirit. The Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The person who's, it's the true Jew that lives a life of praise and is commendable in the eyes of the Lord. And the true Jew is one who has had their heart circumcised by the Spirit of God. Rahab was more of a Jew than the Jews were because she lived a life exemplified by faith. They per, Paul would go on later in Romans to say the Jews are condemned because they sought the law by works, not by faith. The Jew is one who has had their heart circumcised by God and they believe in his promises and are justified by faith and by faith alone. There's two things that Paul is doing here. First, he's telling us that Gentile obedience to the law of God comes about by inner heart change. Circumcision is not outward and physical. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit of God. Gentile obedience comes about because circumcision has been done in their hearts by the Spirit of God. The issue of spirit-wrought works of obedience from a changed heart versus a flesh-wrought obedience based on works. That's what's being pitted against each other here. Spirit wrought works from a circumcised heart versus fleshly wrought works 
by attempted obedience to the law of God to garner his favor. The Jew, the true Jew, is the one who has had a circumcised heart and lives out of that circumcised heart. And this, I'm telling you, is Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 language. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, he talks about this inward change being done covenantally with God's people. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, they, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What happens to the person that has, um, that has a heart changed by God in the new covenant? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If you're in new covenant relationship with God via union with Christ, he is your God, and you are his person, his people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. A key component of being in the new covenant, having a circumcised heart, is that he is your God, we are his people, and that he forgives our iniquity and he remembers our sins no more. I mean, what a wonderful and incredible blessing for the believer. That we stand in a position with him now where as far as the east is from the west, he remembers our sins no more. Doesn't count our iniquities against us. Doesn't count our sins against us. And Ezekiel 36 shares this language as well as he talks about the spirit of God being the one that does this work. In Ezekiel 36 beginning in verse, we'll read 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remember, um, that I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This inward heart change specifically being attributed to the work of the Spirit. Paul is combining, in Romans chapter 2, he's combining the reality of the fact that the true Jew is the one who has gone, undergone spiritual circumcision, and that spiritual circumcision is done by the Spirit of God, as predicted in Ezekiel 36. And the covenantal blessings for all of those who are in Christ are full forgiveness of sin and iniquities not being remembered anymore. And he is our God, and we are his people. So he is telling us how a Gentile obedience to the law of God first comes around by heart change. Secondly, Paul defines who a true Jew or an Israelite is. No one is a Jew 
outwardly, but one is a Jew who is one inwardly. And this is the reason why I interpret the covenant promises of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 to be applied to the believer. Yes, I know that it says specifically it's for Israel and for Judah. But from what I understand and how I read this is that Paul is redefining who Israel is, who Judah is, who's the true Jew. Paul could have just said, he could have addressed this this whole argument without bringing up Gentiles at all. He could have just said, like, if you want to be a true, if you really want to be a real Jew, then you have to have a circumcised heart. But the reason why he brings in Gentile obedience is to show that Gentiles who have a circumcised heart by the Spirit of God, those are the ones that are actually truly Jews. Those are the true Jews. They're the true Israel. All those covenant promises, and that's, and I know this is not universally agreed upon. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm telling you, I'm giving you an exegetical reason as to my understanding of it. But what I believe clearly that Paul is doing here is that he's redefining who Israel is, who a Jew is, as he is saying a true Jew is one who has a circumcised heart. And all of those covenant promises as they were given to Abram began in him because it has a circumcised heart are carried out to those who have a true circumcised heart. As he would go on later in Romans 9 and say, not who are of Israel are not all, not all who are in Israel are of true Israel. There was always an Israel within the Israel, a true remnant saved by faith within the nation, as it is still to today. God's promises um, of salvation are based upon his purposes in election, which we'll get to in Romans chapter 9 eventually. But I link this, this idea to other passages. And, and, and if these are helpful, then I pray that they are something to think about, something for us to, to use, to be Bereans, to um, sharpen each other with. He, Paul would say in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That being in Christ is what makes you an heir of his promise. All of his promises Philippians 3.3, he would go on and say to the believer, Paul would say to the believers there, for we are the circumcision. Christians, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Those who are truly his children are so because they've they've been regenerated by the Spirit, saved by faith, And all of those covenant promises are poured into the believer, those who are true children of his. Um, Scottish minister William Barclay would say this, Jewishness, Paul insists, is not a matter of race at all. Jewishness has nothing to do with circumcision. Jewishness is a matter of conduct. If that is so, then there are many a so-called Jew who is a pure descendant of Abraham and who bears the mark of circumcision in his body who is no Jew at all. And equally, there is many a Gentile who never heard of Abraham, who would never dream of being circumcised, who is a Jew in the real sense of the term. With one stroke, Paul was abolishing the very basis of Jewish thought. He was shutting out from real Jewishness many and many a Jew, and he was introducing a new conception which made Jewishness a thing available to every nation, a thing as wide as the earth itself. And this is the person whose life is 
is praised by God as he would end in verse 29. His obedient, the obedience of faith from a circumcised heart is praised by God because God is the one who circumcises the heart. God is rejoicing in what it is that he has done. God commends a life that is born of him. And so he's commending his own work, his own handiwork, and what he does in the life of a person who has truly come to know Christ and love him. Let me just say this as we begin to move towards the communion table. Regardless of, of where we stand on our understanding of, of Israel, I know again that there are different views on that. Several truths I think are clear that we can agree on. God's requirement in obedience is perfection. That none of us are, but that Christ is. Man is not saved by works, not by natural law, not by Mosaic law. Man is only saved by faith in Christ. And it's that those who, who are saved have undergone a heart change and are true children of God. Faith is always what is required for salvation. Everybody all throughout the ages have, have always been and only been justified by faith. So, if you are his, if you are here today and you know Christ, know that all of his promises are for you. You rest in that. You rejoice in his work, in your life. All of the promises that he gives us in his word are yes and amen in Christ. And, to, uh, and for us to live our lives like we are in Christ. That he is, that he who is your life as scripture says, is indeed your life. And you think that way and you live that way as a life oriented towards living the life, practically living out the life that you have right now by faith in Christ. You think of all his promises, all the power, all the help that he provides for his children to live that life of faith. At the same time, we need to be aware of the lurking pride and hypocrisy that lies within. Just as the Jews use these things as they became stumbling blocks for them by way of pride and hypocrisy, so it is that our outward works and actions can become stumbling blocks for us. You get too far away from the one that you first loved. You forget that his salvation in your life was initiated by him. It's sustained by him. It's completed by him. And that everything that we do by way of works is just an opportunity of joyful response to him and what it is that he's done for us in our lives. As we partake of the communion table now, this is a time for believers. And think about, as, you, as, your eye, as our eyes are drawn, this is why we do this every week, our eyes are drawn specifically to the source of our hope, the source of our life in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know as I look at this cracker and as I look at this juice, I know that I have nothing to offer. I bring nothing to the table. There's nothing good in me that would merit salvation. I part we get to partake of the communion meal together simply because he has invited us to and allows us to do it. 
So why would we not then partake of this with such, such hearts of worship and adoration and joy as we get to partake of this meal with the king in fellowship with him? But as we do it, and we're rejoicing in our fellowship that we have with him, this is also an opportunity for us to, to examine and to confess the ways in which we have not lived consistently with the new nature that we have in Christ, the circumcised heart. Yes, God has done a work in my heart, but guess what? There are ways that I've treated my wife and I've spoken with my wife and kids earlier this week that are not consistent with that. Thoughts that I have had and things that I have done that are not consistent with a circumcised heart. This is my opportunity to come and to lay those things and confess those things before him and still be assured of the pardon that he gives me because my salvation is founded and rests upon the work of Christ and not my own. So the elements are on the tables behind you. You can get those and return back to your seat. You'll have some time of prayer and then we will partake of communion together here shortly.